This is Asian Insider and I'm Nirmal Ghosh. Now, the United States of America is in a public health crisis, an economic crisis, which is the worst since the Great Depression. And colliding with all this is the long unfinished unsolved matter of race relations. The death of George Floyd at the hands of a Minnesota police officer since charged with murdering him was too graphic for anyone to ignore. We are now in the third week of daily protests across the country against racism in the police force and in fact racism in general. And it is worth noting that these are not only African-Americans protesting. There are as many or more white people and many, if not mostly, young people. All this in a toxic, polarized political environment with an election in less than five months. We have a belligerent President Donald Trump positioning as the law and order president, and on the foreign front, upping the rhetoric and the strategic competition with China, blaming China for the pandemic. Today, we have on the line political scientist Ian Bremer, president and founder of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. G Zero Media, by the way, is a media partner of the Straits Times. Ian, thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, sure, Norm. Good to be with you. So, first, first, what's your view on all this going forward into the election? Are we looking at the possibility of increased conflict, violence, and even perhaps a contested result, which would raise the risk of some degree of civil unrest or even conflict? What's your sense? I, I think this will be by far the most divisive, ugliest, and probably most violent uh, election in the U.S. of our lifetimes. Uh, you, you have to recognize that one thing that you will never hear inside the Trump White House is, no, we couldn't do that. That would be wrong. Um, <laughs> there are no boundaries on what President Trump will do or at least attempt to do in order to ensure that he is reelected. And uh, given that his approval ratings are uh, challenged right now uh, and, and are likely to be worse as we see double digit extended unemployment running up through the elections, as we see six to eight percent economic contraction this year, as we see 150,000, maybe more deaths from coronavirus on President Trump's watch, it doesn't matter that he's not personally responsible for all those things. He is president while they happen. When American presidents are running for re-election and the economy is doing well, they do well. Um, Trump is uh, particularly uh, unfortunate, uh, misfortunate. Uh, in, in the sense of how badly this is all turning out, and he is personally responsible for some of it. So, yes, I, I think he's uh, likely uh, to, uh, to attempt to affect the election outcome uh, in, in ways that would be considered extra legal in trying to ensure that, that fewer voters actually come out to the polls. Uh, we haven't seen anything like that before, and, and absolutely the losing side will see the vote is rigged. Uh, and I think that's a big problem. Right. Uh, focusing on China for a bit, uh, which China has become such a huge issue, it sort of replaced Mexico in 2016. Um, the relationship is in a slide on almost every front, and Hong Kong is potentially turning into a proxy conflict zone. We have increasingly negative public sentiment on China here in the US, according to the polls I've seen. What should we brace for in terms of the U.S.-China relationship? Well, the U.S.-China relationship is heading towards a Cold War. I wouldn't make the prediction that we'll be there at this point, 
but certainly on pretty much every front uh, from Hong Kong and Taiwan to the South China Sea, to technology, to trade, to the coronavirus, on all of these issues, we're seeing uh, that actually confrontation between the world's two largest economies is actually becoming significantly greater. Um, and, and Trump does understand that blaming the Chinese government for the original sin of coronavirus, which of course they did cover up, they didn't share um, the early results that they had from their labs um, with the World Health Organization or with the rest of the world, that's, that's something that actually has bipartisan support in the United States. If he didn't have a tough line policy against China, frankly, Biden would beat up on him in the elections for that. So, I mean, pretty much everyone is rowing in the same direction. Now, Trump does understand that hitting the Chinese directly on the phase one trade deal would mean more tariffs on consumer goods that would hurt the American economy, hurt the markets, hurt the American consumer. And he's been reluctant to do that. But on every other front, he's hitting the Chinese very hard. And as we get closer to the election, especially mm -hmm. if Trump's approval ratings are poor, I think even on the phase one deal, he'd be more likely to break it because, of course, then there's not so much more economics to fall before the election, but you are benefiting from really being the guy that's tough on China. And, and Trump, Trump sees very clearly that that's, that's where he wants to position himself. Let's also keep in mind that the Chinese government, uh, Xi Jinping, is not guaranteed a third term in 2022. And, and quietly, senior leaders in China are saying that Xi Jinping has made a lot of mistakes and you know maybe he shouldn't be leader for life in China. Maybe term limits shouldn't be a thing of the past. And so I think Xi Jinping's willingness to also play nationalism against Trump is going to be higher. You've certainly seen that in terms of the willingness to change the rule set for Hong Kong of benefit to Singapore, not good for the Hong Kong people, all of that plays. So I think the timing of all of this for domestic politics for both the US and for China are making this worse. Interesting. So we have already seen America first in action, you know, withdrawal from multilateral arrangements and institutions deemed not in America's national interest and so forth. And there is a perception that America's role as a key provider of global security goods, you know, uh, is being eroded. So much of the world is watching the United States with a mix of alarm and concern. Where does all this or where will all this leave the United States in terms of its role in global affairs? Um, I would say, well, first of all, you know that, I mean, the name of our company, G Zero Media, I mean, this is this idea that there isn't a G7 or a G20, there's really no global leadership. The United States is less willing um, and less capable of playing the role of global sheriff or architect of global trade or even promoter of global values um, around the world. That was always a controversial role. It was always at least somewhat hypocritical. Um, but still, the U.S. was largely willing to play it. The idea of American exceptionalism was something that really informed foreign policy makers and the establishment on both the left and the right hand side of the aisle in the United States. That's really gone. Now, does that mean that the United States doesn't want to be a leader anymore? Well, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, you know, the U.S. dollar is still the global reserve currency. And when the Americans pulled out of the Iranian nuclear deal, it wasn't like the Americans were saying, OK, the rest of you, just do what you want. We're not a part of it. No, no, no. We told other countries, we expect you to press the Iranians with us. We expect you to sanction the Iranians with us. So 
you know, normal, that is leadership. It's just not collective. It, it's not the United States working with allies and saying, let's come to an agreement together. Rather, it's the Americans unilaterally leading and telling other allies, you either get on board or we're going to whack you. And I think that there's a lot more of that. I mean, uh, if you think about the United States and 5G and technology, we are not just saying we don't want to lead. We are saying we're going to beat up the Chinese and Huawei, not allow them to defeat us in 5G, not allow them to have semiconductors, other critical components from other countries. And we're telling other countries around the world, we expect you to follow us. That is leadership, but it's unilateral. It's the United States walking away from a lot of the multilateral institutions that the United States created after World War II because we find, first, that they're no longer as aligned with the geopolitical order, and secondly, because we feel constrained by them. And that's something that you know has been growing for probably a decade or more in the United States. You saw some of that under Obama as well. But clearly, with America first um, as Trump's creed de coeur, um, as his presidency, it's happening to a much greater degree now. And, and I think that it's going to make a lot of allies deeply uncomfortable. Most, most recently, of course, Trump's decision to uh, withdraw 9,500 troops from Germany didn't bother to tell the Germans in advance he was going to make that announcement. I mean, if you're a European ally right now, or even if you're the Japanese, and you're looking at how much you can trust the ongoing commitment of the U.S. security umbrella, nuclear umbrella, you, you have to be a little bit concerned about that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That was actually going to be my next question. The key allies in Asia, Japan, South Korea, the Philippines. What will four more years of Donald Trump bring for those alliances? Well, I think that there will be more of a pivot to Asia, a real pivot to Asia. I mean, under Obama, he, of course, talked about the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He didn't get it done. He talked about spending much more time in Asia. He was actually doing a lot more in the Middle East. Uh, Trump withdrawing... Uh, from the Iranian uh, deal, pulling troops out of the Middle East, Afghanistan, uh, really has very little interest in maintaining a significant diplomatic, economic, or military footprint in the Middle East, sees China by far as his principal antagonist, and as a consequence, wants to be doing more in Asia. The question is, how much of that will be aligned? I mean, the Australians have a much worse relationship with China right now and they're driving these investigations that they want um, into uh, the Chinese behavior around coronavirus in the early weeks. Now, the United States is very much on board for that, but the Australians and the Americans didn't actually coordinate in the announcement. So the question is, is this going to be the United States being much more aggressive with China, but largely um, you know, uh, driving that policy by itself, or will allies in the region see themselves as much closer to the United States. I mean, you could imagine in four more years of Trump that NATO becomes kind of irrelevant, the Germans are barely an ally, uh, but the Japanese, the South Koreans, the Australians actually become much more important as the Americans move their military might much more into the Asian sphere, as they focus much more on cyber, on technology issues, and less on the conventional and nuclear military balance. That's what NATO is all about. Now, I mean, I'm not trying to pretend that Trump would be good at diplomacy, and obviously he's not personally liked by pretty much any of these leaders, 
But whether or not the president is personally liked, the United States still is the world's most powerful nation. Um, and, and really, no one else is really that close, at least in a comprehensive way. That doesn't go away just because you don't like the president. So we need to recognize that, too. Right. And, and, and you mentioned Joe Biden. I mean, China is a, is a campaign issue for both campaigns. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to a change of guard with Joe Biden, I mean, he's promising a return to civility and diplomacy and so forth. How do you see that panning out if he comes back? If he yeah, well, first, that's, I'd say I think it's a 50-50 uh, proposition right now as to whether Biden or Trump win, um, both because Trump's less popular, but his base is much more enthusiastic, turnout's going to matter a lot, and the Dirty Tricks campaign, both internal and external, all play. So I don't have a strong call at this point as to who wins. I, I do think that um, there will be a fair amount of normalization. Obviously, many of the international institutions that Trump has withdrawn from or said he's going to withdraw from. I mean, the Paris Climate Accord, the World Health Organization, actually the U.S. continues to uh, formally uh, be members of both of those agreements uh, because the U.S. can't leave until after the election formally. Um, but uh, if Biden were president, he would uh, clearly reiterate America's uh, involvement and membership in those organizations. He would bring the Americans back into the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Agreement, the Open Skies Accord, the Iranian Nuclear Agreement. I mean, there are a lot of these things, and I think that that would make allies more comfortable. But I also think the China relationship would continue to be confrontational. Um, Biden would focus more on Hong Kong uh, more on the Uyghurs and human rights, while Trump is more focused more on uh, technology and our national hard national security issues. But I still think that orientation would be challenging. Um, I think what would be more different under Biden most clearly is that diplomacy would be more normalized, even if the United States still acted in a uni, you know, um, uh, unilateral way. Uh, I think that uh, the willingness um, to sit down and engage diplomatically, jump through the hoops, show appropriate protocol, very, you know, far fewer gaffes, far less offense being taken individually by leaders, you know, that kind of thing. And, and obviously Biden would not show personal preference to the strong man, the authoritarian orientation, folks like Putin, even Xi Jinping, despite the challenged U.S.-China relationship, Trump likes that Erdogan and Turkey, Duterte in the Philippines, there'd be much less of that under Biden. So I think symbolically and diplomatically, it would feel very, very different. I think in terms of actual policy, less so uh, than people think. So tell me one last quick question. Um, this Southeast Asia, ASEAN and Southeast Asia, how important is that in Washington, D.C.? We have the you know free and open Indo-Pacific and Southeast Asia is supposed to be in the middle. It, it is in the middle. How does it, how, how important is it uh, for, for the U.S. as a relationship with Southeast Asia as a region? Uh, I think it's becoming more important for the reasons I mentioned, more military engagement, Australia particularly important uh, as Hong Kong goes away as a global financial center. Singapore will be where a lot more American financial institutions and corporations have their Asian headquarters. So Singapore will become more strategically important to the United States. And that will be problematic for Singapore because, of course, it'll be harder for 
your country to balance between the U.S. and China and have an you know, sort of open, friendly relationship with everyone no matter what. But I do think Southeast Asia is going to become more strategically important. That's the gravity of the global economic uh, growth is increasingly going to be in your part of the world. And I, I think that America's uh, international and national security interests will align with that. Uh, that is a, a double-edged sword, assuredly. Ian Bremer, thank you very much for your time. Right, so the world is watching with some degree of anxiety and concern events in the United States as it deals with multiple crises and an election which is quite possibly the most consequ consequential election in modern American history is less than five months away. For Asian Insider, I'm Nirmal Ghosh.